are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. We have been on a series for the last four weeks on Beyond Blessed, called Beyond Blessed, really talking about personal finances and how not only God calls us to be generous and givers, but how he calls on us to be good stewards, to use the money that he's entrusted us with uh, in, a, in a way that pleases him, a way that edifies the kingdom. And uh, I hope that you've been blessed by it. I hope you've enjoyed it. And last week was a, a, a great opportunity as we had a panel discussion. And I want to thank again Nathan Varnum, Matt Wheeland, and Alex Shirley for their contribution. I also want to thank Joe Wilson, who's here. And uh, he contributed that great article, and uh, I appreciate all of the, the contribution of the, yet last week. And uh, this week I had, I guess I, I got re- reconnected with a, a dear friend uh, just a few weeks ago in Indianapolis. Uh, D- Reverend Doug Hughes is here tonight, and him and I went to Bible school in Indianapolis I guess it's 20 years or something like that, which is weird, but uh, something like that. Uh, But just uh, I remember him in Bible school as uh, a man that I respected, a man of God, and uh, seeing him at the IBC graduation banquet, he was a part of that, and uh, just the opportunity to connect with him. We were talking, and he works in the financial arena and a financial consultant, and advisor, and has uh, a great ministry. He's also a licensed minister with the United Pentecostal Church, serves on the stewardship uh, division board. Um, he is active teaching um, at Ivy Tech, I believe it's called, and Indiana University teaching, and uh, really looks at finances from a behavioral standpoint. And tonight I invited him to come. He lives in Bloomington, Indiana, so not too far away, but invited him to come to just tie a bow on our series, and uh, he's going to have some great things to share with us about finances. But I'm really honored that he came and appreciate him being a part of this series. Would you give Reverend Doug Hughes a warm Calvary welcome tonight? Amen. To the pastor of this great church and to all the saints who are gathered today and to all those who are visiting for the first time and to all those who have made Wednesday Bible study a part of your life, I say praise the Lord in Jesus' name. You may be seated if you like. It is good to be with your pastor and his family and um, so thankful that we did connect a few weeks ago at Indiana Bible College and what a great time that we had there. Brother Whelan, so good to see you, my brother. It's been quite a while. Amen. Glad to hear you announced. And Brother Marty came right up and, and hugged me. We've known each other for 20-something years, as the pastor called it. He, those are his words, not mine. Amen. Now, um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read from two places tonight. Um, but I, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about me, and then we're going to get right into uh, the Word of the Lord as I, I want to share just a couple of things uh, that the Lord has, has laid on my heart for this particular time and something that I have been talking about for quite some time. So I, I was saved when I was 12 years old. Uh, I was, to this day, I'm the only person in my family 
uh, who is in the church besides my wife and her mother. I started out in the Apostolic Bible Church, and I got the Holy Ghost before I was baptized. Some of you have heard this kind of story before. And from 12 years old on, I was a bus kid. So I grew up in my church, getting started, filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name, as a bus kid. After that, I went to Indiana Bible College. I was there for four years, and my wife, Terry, who is not here with me tonight, uh, my last year was her first year. She's from the state of Illinois. The main difference between Indiana and Illinois, a few sports teams, and in Indiana, we put pasta in our chili. In Illinois, they do not. They think that's weird. So there's been a lot of discussions over the years about what chili really should look like. Now, I only say that because I've heard something about chili in this area. So I'm going to stay completely out of this tonight. And when my wife comes back here with me, please do not tell her I told you uh, about the air of the Illinois way. But that being said, uh, I grew up in this from 12 years old. Interestingly enough, my father has been the attorney for the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World uh, for the last, I think, 45 years. What's interesting about this is that my father was in every business meeting with that board for that particular amount of time. And those men, those bishops, I owe them so much in favor because there was never a time when their white, staunch attorney was coming in that they did not pray and speak in tongues and talk about the Holy Ghost right in front of him. So when I went to my father's house every other weekend growing up because my parents were divorced, and finally I said to my dad, Dad, i got to tell you something happened to me. He said, what's that, son? I said, I went to this church and I got filled with the Holy Ghost. He said, what does that mean? I said, I began speaking in tongues. He said, what is going on down there in Bloomington that my 12-year-old son is speaking in an unknown language? He went back and began talking to those bishops of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, and they said to him, don't worry, he's in great places. And from that point forward, my father has been very open to what I do and who I am. So thanks be unto God. My wife grew up as a bus kid as well. We have one son. He is 15 years old. His name is Daniel. And I spend my time teaching in churches, teaching at marriage conferences, teaching in singles conference about really exciting things like uh, economics and investments, but primarily behavioral finance. So I am a lot of fun. Right, right. Talk about inflation, CPI, CPIE, CPIW, CPIU. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody actually really even cares. Um, and so I talk about inflation rates. I talk about currency exchanges. I talk about things that, you know, the things that you talk about when you're at home in the evenings. Right? No. Uh, actually, I went to the Wharton School of Finance after Indiana Bible College, and I studied behavioral finance, which, what does that mean? Sounds like a big, fancy term. It really only means, why do people do what they do financially? What are we anchored to in our hearts and our minds? What were we taught about giving? What were we taught about money? And what are we anchored to on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, or annual basis as our decision-making process with this thing called money. Now, I'm going to be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter number 41, and I'm going to read several scriptures here, and then I'll be reading a prayer from the book of Proverbs, and then I'm going to jump right into to what I want to say tonight. And um, 
I begin at verse number 46. Amen. Um, yes, verse number 46 of Genesis 41. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 30 years old. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt. And he laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sea of, uh, the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. And Joseph, and unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which were Asaph, the daughter of Petiah, the priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph, the name of the firstborn, Manasseh, for God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And notice this, and the seven years of plenteousness that was in the land of Egypt were ended. Everybody say ended. And the seven years of dearth began to come according as Joseph had said, and the dearth was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished and the people cried unto Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he saith to you, do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians, and the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And notice this, and all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that famine was so sore in all the lands. Now, uh, I, I will be picking right back up in Genesis in just a few minutes. I want you to push rewind in your minds, and I want you to imagine a time in this particular country where people would go to work, and they had a time machine, and they would push those time cards in, and they would stamp that they were in. They would do their required work, push the time card when they were to go out, and life was pretty simple. You are employed by a play, perhaps a good place, maybe one of the automobile makers, GM, Ford. We go down the list of the different types of places you could be employed. And you knew pretty much if you went by the rules, the conduct rules at the place of employment, and your production and your efforts were pretty well in line with what they needed, you knew that you could stay at that same place of work for the next 30 to 40 years. You didn't have to think too much about anything, really, because you had jobs that were predictable, they were steady, and you knew what you were going to make. You would have some different increases along the way. You knew exactly when you were going to retire, because back then, financial planning was pretty simple. You got a good job, you stayed at the same place, and eventually you became to an age where that corporation would say, Here's your watch, here's your phone, and guess what? Here's your pension. That pension was designed to cover your life and your spouse's wife for the rest of both your lives. You didn't have to worry about much. You made sure the mortgage was paid. You might have had some money in the bank with some CDs. 
You had permanent life insurance because that's what was sold back then. Why? Because the insurance companies weren't selling term insurance back in those days. That's actually a fairly new vehicle. You knew that if you had your house paid off, a car paid off, a pension coming in, and you chose the right Social Security option, life was going to be pretty simple. But then all of a sudden in, 19, in the late 1970s, 1978, in the beginning or in the middle of the night, Congress signed something into law called an ERISA law. And that particular ERISA law said to corporations, guess what? You no longer have to offer pensions. Now you can offer something called a 401k. Next thing you know, in the middle of the night, when we didn't know about it, everything began to change. Financial decisions shifted from the places that employed you onto our own shoulders. The 401k celebrated its 40th birthday in November of 2018. That's when we went from defined benefit plans. You knew exactly what you were going to get, exactly how long you were going to get it, and exactly what it looked like. Believe it or not, you even knew what your health insurance was going to be like. And 40 years ago, that all changed, went from defined benefit to defined contribution plans, meaning it's a yo-yo economy. You are on your own. And the next thing you know, people began having to make decisions about things they didn't understand about. Large cap stocks, tips, treasury, inflation, protected securities, 401k, 457, 403b, if I work at the hospital, the church, or somewhere else. I don't know what's going on. Cafeteria plans that cover my health insurance. I don't understand any of this stuff. And all of a sudden, we began a significant shift in the way that Americans began to plan for retirement because we found ourselves with all of this on our shoulders. My brothers and sisters, America enjoyed a very, very prosperous, wonderful time where you knew you could get a job and you could stick with it. Life was going to be pretty predictable. But now the average American changes jobs five to seven times in their life. When we see unemployment rates go way up, as we did after the Great Recession, people began getting employed again. But they weren't just being employed. They were being what's called underemployed. They found jobs, their jobs making less money with less benefits. Thank God I have a job, but it's not the job I used to have. And we began seeing more and more of these things happen the great, after the Great Recession. But here's one thing that's true, and it's never changed even from the days of Joseph. There are going to be seasons of life financially that are going to be very steady, very predictable, and you can have a lot of confidence in institutions. But then there also can come a time when without you having any say in the matter and all of the things that you assume are going to be steady and are going to be very, very sublime change just like that. And you can enter into a time when you have to take your own responsibility for your finances, believe it or not. I'm sitting here, standing here as you're sitting here tonight talking to people who have had to think about things financially that, that 40 years ago you didn't have to think about. It's because things have changed. Economies change. Markets change. But you know what doesn't change? Our behaviors. This is why in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is what? Do not what? Covet! Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's land, your neighbor's cattle, all these different things. It's because one of our behaviors is we have a hard time looking around and being satisfied. 
You know, when everything is kind of calm and everything's kind of steady and everything's kind of go, you're, you're feeling okay about life. But when things have gotten choppy and up and down, you begin looking around and wondering and you're wrestling with this thing called covetousness. Or can I even say it in a plainer term, envy. And we find ourselves drifting into different parts of envy. And the next thing you know, to keep up with, remember this, keeping up with the Joneses, we began doing things in our own personal life, taking risks. Notice I didn't say accumulating debt. I said taking risks that we don't even really know that we're taking. And we began looking around in our behavioral finance uh, crystal ball, and we say, what does this look like going forward? Will there always be something my brothers and sisters, there's not always a guarantee of something. The, the days of depending on institutions to last and, and, and to nest you and take care of you forever, those are behind us. We are now having to make decisions as husband and wife, as single person, as grandparent, as parent, as to what we are going to do with this thing called money. We can honor God with it. We can be wise with it. Or we can be foolish with it, believe it or not. And... Oftentimes, when we think about the foolishness of money and how people handle it, it doesn't take long for me to make that statement that someone doesn't come to your mind. And maybe not yourself. Right? My wife isn't here tonight. So I could say a lot of things. But I'm not going to. But I want to address something right now. You know, I, 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 when I speak to crowds, I always say this in, in, in marriage retreats, and, and for those of you who are married or aren't married or wherever you are, this is a very, very true way to look at things. I always say, if you get two savers married, they're never going to fight. Their fight is, I'm going to out-coupon you, right? I saved more than you did. If you ever get two spenders together, never going to be a fight. They don't care. You spent 400, I'm spending five. Right? Some of you act like you don't know what I'm talking about. This is real. But you get a saver and a spender in the shame checkbook, look out. Right? I was teaching in a church one time, and this is a very sad but serious note, and the pastor said to me, listen, would you meet with some people afterwards? I said, yeah, I'll be glad to talk. He said, no, there's one couple I need you to talk to. I said, okay. I went back to his office. Next thing I know, it was the choir director and his wife. And as I began to talk to them, she began sobbing. She had a credit card. Maybe it was uh, Macy's, just throwing a name out there. He got angry. He got mad. How dare she have this credit card with a $500 balance? She was weeping and sobbing and all these different things and went through this list of things they had to have clothing-wise. And next thing I know, the Lord kind of dealt with me about this right there on the spot. And I don't say this lightly because this doesn't happen all the time, but I thought, I'm going to ask him. So I said, well, brother, you know, I understand you're a little bit dismayed over here about this, but do you have it? Well, I have two credit cards. Menards and Lowe's, right? And the next thing you know, I was, I, was, I was right in the middle of a couple who were arguing over credit cards just after they led the choir. The Holy Ghost fell, right? And I'm doing this. I say that to say this, my brothers and sisters, when it comes to finances, you need to become one. 
And the fights that so easily crop up, build up, and cause division are oftentimes caused out of envy, as I mentioned a moment ago, but sometimes they're caused out of two very different financial blueprints. You don't understand one another financially. I came from a family of savers. My wife was a, one of five children raised by a single mother. They didn't have the option to save. So to her, paycheck to paycheck was very normal living. For me, I didn't quite understand this. And the next thing you know, I didn't understand what that meant. My wife worked, my wife worked at Lazarus. It was a clothing store. And I, I was stressed out one time. I, I'll tell you my testimony one time when I'm, when I'm here. But I, real quick, they came out of Bible college and I could preach. I was ready to go. Sign me up. I'll preach anywhere, everywhere. And the next thing you know, the Lord shut the door and opened this up to me. After four years of Bible college. And so there I was. I was working. I was stressing. I was feeling anxiety. I didn't like what, what was going on. And my wife was working at the clothing store. And, and I was working hard. I was, uh, I was delivering pizzas. I was youth pastoring. And I was doing this. I mean, I was doing everything I possibly could. I was getting my business going and everything. And, and, and my wife would come home with little bags from Lazarus. Anybody remember that name, Lazarus? Maybe not remember how Lazarus. And she would say things to me like, well, it talked to me. I said, what talked to you? Well, that dress. I'm a no-debt guy, no-credit card guy. I believe in all these people, and we'll talk about them in a few minutes, but I had a hard time with this. What do you mean it talked to you? Well, just when you're walking through. I said, no, it's costing me more money for you to work there than not work there. And she said, but it's a 20% discount. Yes, only if you use a 21% card. One time she got me good on April Fool's. She walked into the house with these huge bags of Lazarus stuff. And she said, you won't believe what I was able to get today. I about fell over. And it was a bag full of watch boxes that she wanted to hand out to our young people in our church just for something to use on their credenzas at home. But about, I about lost it. Why? Because I thought to myself, here we go again. I didn't view this as my wife doing something she enjoyed doing, getting clothes. I viewed this as this isn't her getting fulfillment out of something she enjoys doing. This is three extra hours of work for me. Now, this is where it's going to settle in and take this home with you. Some of our financial disagreements and arguments aren't necessarily the behavior that you've done. It's the position that you've put each other in. If I have to work two or three extra hours at a job I don't like to pay for something that you have to have without talking to me about it, we're going to have a problem. Financial infidelity, financial infidelity is climbing by leaps and bounds in this country. What's financial infidelity? Accounts that your spouse has no idea exist. And these aren't always savings accounts with lots of money. These are cards. These are loans. These are monies that you've handed out to people without talking to your spouse. This is financial infidelity. And I will tell you, 
You can read any periodical. You can find any survey out there. Financial infidelity, and I was talking about this 10 years ago. It is on the uptick majorly. I just described to you a choir couple. They were choir director, okay? And these people did not know which who had what going on. And the next thing you know, I'm standing between two Holy Ghost-filled people like this who were speaking in tongues 45 minutes ago because they couldn't be honest with one another. He viewed her as making his life harder. She viewed him as being authoritarian and like a dictator to her. Money, my brothers and sisters, isn't easy. You ever wonder what, you know, uh, I would say it this way, every entrepreneur, you know, a good entrepreneur knows that a big problem is a big opportunity. So along come people, and there's a few names you've heard this. John Cumata, maybe, uh, Larry Burkett back in the day, Susie Orman is big out there today. And then you might have heard of this guy, Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Woo. I read his book in 1997 when it first came out. Love it. Everyone's going through the program. And they get through it. I've never, I, my pastor asked me to be in one and I said, brother, I'm going to sit down and put my feet under every table you want me to because when the pastor asks you to be involved in something, you do it. And I was right there and the first night everyone totaled up their credit card debt and there were 14 of us in the room and it was like $180,000 and I began looking around. Everyone's looking at me and I'm looking at them. We're all wondering, what, what, what? Everybody was fired up, excited, ready to go, had the debt snowball. By the way, right now, it's the debt snowball or the debt avalanche. I don't know why it's always snowy and mountainy, but if you want to find out the best way to get out of debt, run the calculator to the debt snowball or the debt avalanche, two different approaches. Check it out if you don't believe me. But the reality is everyone's fired up for their debt snowball, and they're looking for the same thing, looking to get out. And about six months in, what happens? That emergency fund that we were supposed to fund for $1,000, it either wasn't enough or it was too boring. Amen. And then we go through the Dave Ramsey class again. We listen to him because when you listen to him, you always find someone who's in worse shape than you are. You don't feel quite so bad at that point. Write this down. Take this home with you. Every couple in this room, every single person in this room, whoever you are, you need to do a net worth statement every two years. You need to share that with someone. Your spouse. Whoever it is, you need to share that. You need to know exactly what you have. That's your net worth statement. You want to be successful? Know your net worth statement. Don't lie about it. Don't fib about it. Don't act like you're a millionaire when you're not. Okay? I know in God's eyes we're all millionaires. Remember that song too. Okay, but that's not what we're doing. The next one. Everyone here should find a quality cash flow calculator. Cash flow statement. There was a, I don't like to quote country music songs. I'm not, I don't listen to it going down the road and all this, but there was a very good country music. Well, at least the title was good one time. It was called Too Much Month at the End of My Money. Some of you remember that and some of you think it's funny. Okay. But the reality is this if you are not managing your cash flow, you'll never figure this thing out. You'll never figure it out. So you know what you do? You sit down around the table, you get out a piece of paper, and you go through a cash flow statement. So a net worth statement and a cash flow statement. You need to have these things and be very familiar with these things. These things aren't going to be comfortable. They're not always going to be uh, roses, and they're always going to be pretty. They're going to have a lot of things involved in them. 
But if you want to know how you're going to win, if you want to know how you're going to be free, if you're going to want to know how to be a good steward of what God has put in your hands, then you want to know these things. The scripture says in the book of Proverbs that you should know well your flocks in the fields. Many people really have no idea what's going on. Now, let me get to Joseph really quickly because there's something very powerful in this particular portion of Scripture. Joseph, as you know, was given a spiritual gift. He was able to interpret dreams. And because of that interpretation of dreams, we know that he was imprisoned at one point, and I'm going to paraphrase kind of quickly through here, until one time Pharaoh had this dream, and this dream was about these very large cattle and then these very thin cattle. And Pharaoh had said, listen, I need all my magicians. I need everyone. I need someone to be able to interpret this dream. And finally, at the, as we get to the where we came up to in our story, we find out that, that he calls for Joseph. And Joseph comes and he says to Pharaoh, he says, listen, there are going to be seven years of predictability. I can tell you how long it's going to last. I can tell you what it's going to look like. It's going to be plenteous. There's going to be more than, than enough. There's going to be seven really great years. But at the end of those seven years, there is going to be seven years of famine, of dearth. Things are not going to go well. So what do you do? Not over seven years, but over 14 years. What is your 14-year plan? And the Bible says that Pharaoh said, well, what do I do? What what do I do with this man? And the, the scripture says that he looks and he says, I have to have a man that I can send to do some really neat, and here's a big word, Brother Whelan, you'll love this, accounting. Brothers, brother, brothers, surely I should say, aren't here tonight. This is a big plug for them. I want you to do some accounting. The Bible says that Pharaoh said that there was none as discreet and none as wise as Joseph. But you know what Joseph did when he was given that role, when he was given that position? He didn't walk around all the cities and say, hey guys, you know what, I can interpret dreams. You want to hold a revival? Right here. I can interpret dreams. What would you do if you knew someone who could interpret dreams from God? What would we do with that? I mean, we would think, put him on the stage. But where his supernatural gift allowed him to go was to the place of his God-given talents and abilities. And the Bible says that Joseph went throughout all of those cities and began counting the corn. And he began saving the corn. And he was counting the corn and saving the corn. He was looking around at populations. He was looking around at what's going on, how much food is going to be needed. I know we're in years of plenteous. You know, it's so easy, isn't it, when things are going so well, to always assume that things will always go well. And then we never, ever think about what if things change dramatically. And the next thing you know, we move around in life. And and, and as good stewards, we assume that that money only goes up. We assume, guess what? House values only go up. And they do, except for when they don't, right? And and we think the stock market always gives 10%, and it does, except for when it doesn't. And and we, 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 we design everything around hypotheticals, not historicals. Watch those two words very carefully. Hypothetical versus 
historical. The reality is this. Joseph was looking around and he was doing the work of an accountant. He was not doing the work of a supernatural dream interpreter. I I have one quick word as a side note to someone here. What God has given you spiritually will equip you to do natural things and do them well. Joseph, Joseph then, after the interpretation of his dream, finds himself for 14 years. The first seven, he's working as an accountant. The second seven, he finds himself as a distributor. Because the Bible says when the people began coming to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you're the institution, as I talked about earlier. You're the one who's supposed to be handing out the food. You're the one who tells us what's going to happen next. We need bread. You know what he said to him? He said, go down and find my steward. Joseph. He has been saving for this very day. This man knew seven years ago what was coming, and because of that, he is prepared for the unexpected. And now, all of a sudden, the people, the Bible says, began coming unto Joseph, and all the Egyptians came unto Joseph, and they were trying to get corn and bread and food because they had to have it to live. But then the last verse, I think, says something even more profound. The last verse says that, and all countries came into Egypt to Joseph to buy corn. Why? Because there was a famine where in all of the lands, in all of the lands, what that tells you is that when land was, was, was those particular people's main uh, what would I say, a state. It was their main source of value was their land. They left the most valuable thing that they had to go and buy food. Who did they go to buy it from? God's man who learned something about stewardship. That things don't always last the way that you think they're going to. Husband, wife, um, I, I'm... I want to say this. How do I say this? I want to say this right, so don't get mad. No reactions here, okay? One of the people who is running for president in 2020 uh, wrote a book. She wrote this book several years back. It's called The Two-Income Trap. How America Fell into the Two-Income Trap. There was a time when we weren't in a two-income trap. We find ourselves today with the cost of goods and services, with lifestyle and life expectancy in a two-income trap. My brothers and sisters, if you don't get a hold of the cash flow statement, and if one of two incomes are gone, what happens? Things change dramatically. So if, if, if what I say today doesn't make any sense to you at all, take some of this with you, at least this way. Find out what your cash flow is. Find out what your net worth is and think to yourself, what if this stopped tomorrow? I know, and, and I'm saying this with a, a clarion voice as the best I can tonight. Listen, things look good. I mean, consumer sentiment is good. Houses are being sold like crazy. Everything it will not last forever. It doesn't last forever. So you need to be aware today for the next time it's not this way. And you need to have your relationship together, not just based on when your 401k looks better than it ever has. We're doing great. You need to be able to say, we're doing great when things aren't so great. And do not allow money to become a divider And do not allow stewardship to get away from you. Everyone can be a worshiper and everyone can be a good steward. 
Now, I want to read real quickly a prayer um, that is prayed by a man by the name of Agur. It's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. I'm going to start at verse number 7. And he prays and he asks God something that I think is very profound. And I want you to take this prayer home with you. Uh, I know I'm running down on time here. I want you to take this prayer home with you, and I want you to begin to pray this prayer over your finances and over your, 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 your spirit and over your flesh. Two things, Agur says, two things have I required of thee, meaning God. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity. What comes from vanity? That's looking around, wishing I had somebody else's life, right? Facebook only tells half the story. Instagram tells just a quarter, right? Okay. Um, Remove far from me vanity. He knew in his flesh that vanity would cause him to drift spiritually. So, you know, we pray a lot of things. God, keep evil from my eye. Keep this, keep this. When was the last time you said, God, let vanity stay far from me? It's a trap for me. It's a problem. Okay. And then he says, and lies. I don't want to be told any lies. Amen. And then he says something. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, a lot of you have prayed that. Lord, don't let me be poor. But I got news for you. And I haven't been in the prayer room here. But there haven't been too many of you said, Lord, don't give me riches. Uh Uh-huh. Right? We don't pray that prayer. Lord, let it come on down. I don't want that promotion, God. Stop it. No raise. It's like the guy went in and he was praying. He said, Lord, give me a million dollars. And he got a job working at a local manufacturing plant making $15 an hour, and about three weeks in, he said, Lord, I don't like what I'm doing. I asked you to give me a million dollars. Lord said, I know, I did. You just got to work 30 years to get it. You know why God just doesn't give us a bunch of money at one time? He knows what we'll do with it. Sometimes the way God gives you money is by not letting your car break down. Because if he gave you $2,000, you might be on a Royal Caribbean cruise with tires that are bald and the ignition is about to go out. I've met that couple too, all right? This is not the prayer we pray, Lord, don't give me riches. That is not a common prayer. But why did he say that? Why? Because I know what we all say, Lord, if I had this money, what I would give and what I would do. You don't know what you would be. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. My brothers and sisters, this is a reasonable prayer. Don't let me become so poor that I steal and take your name in vain. And this is a little bit harder, but Lord, don't let me become so rich that I'm full and I forget about you. 
You know, we know, we know what happens to people who are increased with goods and riches. We know that from the book of Revelation. We know what happens to, to people that are like that. So, so let, me, let me come back to this, and I'm going to give you three points, and I promise I'll have you out by 11 o'clock. Okay, so as I said in the very beginning, the challenge that we have now is that we're on our own. And we're having to deal with definitions that we've never had to deal with before. We have young people that are being offered credit cards that, that probably shouldn't get them. And I often say that about young people, but I've learned in the last 10 years, it's not just young people that shouldn't get them. It's older people too. Okay, sorry. Didn't mean to offend anyone. But the truth is, if you're not good with it in 20s and 30s, don't expect to miraculously become good in your 40s and 50s. This is effort. This is reality. And so when we, when we talk about getting things together, you need to make sure that when you're looking at finances, you're looking at it through a godly approach. And this prayer right here is a prayer that you should be praying. I pray this prayer. You should be praying this prayer every single time you get down and you pray about your family and your finances and your future. God, I don't want to be here. I want to be right where you want me to be financially. I want you to remember Joseph, seven years of feast, seven years of famine. What was he doing during that time? He could have opened up a shingle and just interpreted dreams night after day after day after day and made all kinds of money. Instead, he was going around counting corn saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't going to last. How many people are here? What's going on? And he said, I'm going to be a distributor now because God's steward in the end, the entire, the Bible says they came from all countries to buy from God's steward. They didn't buy from anyone else. They bought from him. Wouldn't it be something if we found ourselves in Christianity as a bastion of good stewardship? Praise God. Now, uh, I know I'm, I'm quickly coming to an end here. A couple, couple one-liners. Write these down. Um, some are original, some are not. I won't tell you which ones are, so they're all original. First one. Make savings part of your payment plan. What happens if you don't make your house payment? What happens if you don't make your car payment? What happens if you don't put money in your savings account? Absolutely nothing. We as human beings feel the pain of loss two times greater than we feel the satisfaction of gain. How is that displayed? Just look at your investment statements. Ah, 10, good. 12, yeah, somebody got 20, I got 10, 12, okay. Not happy about that, but all right. Lose five, Uh uh-oh, what is going on? We feel, we feel loss two times greater than we do the satisfaction of gain. This is why Job said, though he try me, I will come forth as gold. You have to think about that for just a moment. This is the richest man in the entire world who had lost houses, lands, family, all of his cattle, everything, and he put a value on gold, a permanent asset, an asset that's been here since the dinosaurs. As a matter of fact, it's actually in the book of Genesis chapter number 2, good gold. He said, when I come through all this, after all this loss, it will be gold. Remember that we feel loss two times greater than we do the excitement of gain. So make sure you are aware of that. Make savings part of your payment plan so that you don't have those big losses. The next thing uh, that I would say, and this is very true, uh, this is somewhat original. Um, 
your whole financial life is based up like this. It's a series of known unknowns. And what I mean by that is this. If you have a car, you know that you're going to have to change the tires. You just don't know when. So how do most people handle this? They ignore it until the day they need tires. And then they go buy tires, and it's 800 or dollars or whatever it costs. And where does it go? Now to the checking account, it goes to where? Visa, MasterCard, American Express. Right? You need to just write this down and remember this. Financial, our financial life is a series of known unknowns. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen. I, I don't know when I'm going to need a new roof, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to have one. I don't know when I'm going to need a new refrigerator, but I'm going to have to have it. These are not emergencies or surprises. These are things that are just going to come your way and you don't know. And this is where a lot of people get caught, okay? So make sure you understand that, that, that life is a series of known unknowns. You know something's going to happen. You don't know when. Now, the last one, I'm going to say this real quickly for our married folks. A lot of times when we think about the word legacy... We think about our children, okay? But I want to tell you, there's a lot of planning that should be done, and you should find a financial planner, financial advisor, financial counselor in some way to, know, to navigate this, this very, very stark truth. If you have a pension from somewhere else, how you elected to take that pension determines what the pension will look like for your surviving spouse. If you took the single option, which a lot of people did back in the day, that means when you're gone, there's nothing left coming in. Review your elections on pensions. Secondly, Social Security, one of the biggest issues of the day. Remember, if there's two Social Security checks coming in when you're married, guess what happens when one of you dies? The smaller one goes away. So you can imagine a case by which someone's income drops more than 50 or 60 percent, not because of tariffs or, or the stock market or anything like that, just because of elections that were made on pensions and Social Security. Make sure you understand those things because your legacy doesn't begin when the second one of you dies. Your legacy begins when the first one dies, and that's the legacy to the surviving spouse understand where you're at in that. The last one I will say, and uh, this is totally free, the most important, one of the most important, or some of the most important documents you have in your life are your beneficiary forms. Because here's what you do. You go and you have a will done, and you let it sit for 20 or 25 years. You might have filled it out. You might not. I don't know. And then you look around and you think, oh, well, I've got a will. I've got a will. Your beneficiary form always trumps your will. Always. Beneficiary forms are on life insurance, 401ks, 457s, 403bs, all, uh, variable annuities, all this stuff. Anything that has a beneficiary form, whatever that says, will trump your will. You can take it to court and the judge will say, I'm sorry, I know you filled it out 25 years ago when you first applied and you were married to someone else or you liked your sister or whatever it was. That's how it goes. There is court case after court case after court case after court case in this country where people married someone else or they had their mother or their other siblings as beneficiaries 25, 30 years ago, never change their beneficiary forms, and when they're gone, the money goes to the beneficiary. So don't make the mistake of assuming your will covers everything you need to have your beneficiary forms. And I know what you're going to say. If I say, where's your beneficiary form, you're going to say, my advisor has it. No, they don't. Well, they do. Maybe they do. I don't know. But I'm telling you this. You need to have it at your house, (laughs) okay? You need to have that at your house. Brothers and sisters, God bless you tonight. I want to tell you, money isn't easy. Stewardship isn't easy. There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of ground to cover. I hope I covered just a little bit of it tonight. 
God bless you. Thank you for allowing me to be with you. And thank you to your pastor for having me. Amen. God bless you tonight. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.